I'm going to open up the scriptures uh, just for a few uh, minutes, um, and, and then we're going to take some, a, a, a little bit of time to respond in worship, to break bread uh, together. Um, so sit down comfortably, uh, and we'll continue in our Revelation series. Um, and uh, it's great to have Neil and Tracy here this morning. You're almost in your normal seats still. Not quite. A couple of rows back, but almost in their normal seats. It's nice to know some things haven't changed uh, over a year. Um, the summary so far in this Revelation teaching is that the Apostle John is writing to encourage the suffering churches to remain true uh, to their calling, to live for the day. Uh, when Jesus Christ is going to return. He's writing in the early AD 80s. He's an old man now. And as we're discovering, this letter, Revelation, is full of um, picture language and symbols. Um, Jesus has shown himself in chapter 1 to John in this incredible, powerful vision. And Jesus then instructs John to write down these seven letters to seven real churches. Today, we're uh, coming to uh, Thyatira in Revelation 2, verse 18. Uh, again, in modern-day Turkey, as all these churches are at the time, a Roman settlement, not a big or important town like some of the others uh, that we've had letters to. If you recall, uh, maybe in Acts chapter 16, where Paul comes to Philippi and plants a church there, one of the ladies who's pivotal in that church, Lydia, a businesswoman and a trader in textiles and, and cloth, she's from Thyatira, Acts 16 tells us. But really it was an outpost, a bit of a military town, and known perhaps for its trade guilds and its textiles. How do we read the Bible? Well, we're learning the, the Bible, of course, and these letters particularly are written to bring some commendation and correction to the first century church of Theatira. That's the whole point of the letter. But, of course, the Bible wonderfully speaks to all the churches of Jesus down through the centuries until he returns. So there's some specific teaching for that first century church here, some specific correction for those believers as they hear this letter read out. But the way the scriptures work means that there is also, um, prophetically, there are also principles and application for us today in Crawley. We're going to read the passage in a moment, but it's a difficult word to preach this one today. It's been very personal, some of the subject matter in, in, our, in my story, in our story. I've wrestled with what to say. I've even wondered whether I should approach this passage at all in a 25-minute Zoom uh, preach. Um, it's the sort of stuff that we don't often teach on publicly. Normally when I teach on this stuff, it, it's uh, in more depth in things like uh, equip-type weekends or uh, freedom in Christ, battle for the mind, dig for victory, the kind of events that we, we do. But of course the joy of just preaching through a book of the Bible is that you get to preach the next set of verses. And so we come to do that today, just preach what's in front of you. And so today we get some confrontation, we get some correction, and we get some real hope for the church of Jesus Christ uh, that remains pure. So I'm going to preach. Um, then um, as, after we've worshipped, I'm going to call us to repentance. Uh, and then we'll break bread together. Holy Spirit, will you help us as we open up this passage? We love your word. Would you strengthen us? Would you protect us? Would you bring us to true repentance where necessary as we submit our lives to you uh, through these scriptures? Amen. So let me read the passage, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Theatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds and your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, 
I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. Verse 18, the word of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. These are revelations of the ascended Jesus um, in each of these letters. Uh, they get picked up from chapter 1 and shared again in the letters. Here we hear that Jesus has eyes like blazing fire. That means Jesus sees all things. He knows all things. Nothing is hidden from his penetrating gaze. Remember in this, in, in this book, at the start of the letters, we read Jesus is walking amongst his churches. He's observing. He's commending. He's correcting. He misses nothing. Even when we try to hide from God, like Adam and Eve did in the garden in the beginning, in their sin and their shame, uh, Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Verse 23, we've just read. Jesus says, all the churches will know. That includes us. It is me who searches hearts and minds. And Jesus has blazing eyes and bronze feet. He's not like the idols, the man-made idols. Um, uh, he doesn't have feet of clay that can be shattered. He can't be overbalanced. He, he won't be shaken or overturned. Even with an earthquake, he will not be unsettled. And he is going to trample down every enemy uh, in his victory. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 19 says, I know your deeds. I know your love and your faith. I know your service your perseverance, and I know you're doing more now than you did at first. Oh, what a beautiful commendation that is. Even watching that video of our last year, I think, wow, uh, we could say the same things over this little church family this morning. This is a good review from Jesus for the church. We should be encouraged to receive it were it written to us, and it is. Um, our vision here in Crawley today is to love Jesus, to love one another, to love Crawley. And imagine hearing Jesus say, I, uh, you, I know you're doing it. I know you're growing and continuing to improve in these things. I know you're doing it more now than you did at first. A, a year in from this online church, imagine hearing that kind of review from Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We should be highly commended and thrilled to hear his warm remarks over us. Verse 20. Nevertheless, but, here, here comes the, the, the hinge point, the one who knows and sees, the one who looks deeper, the one who penetrates into our hearts, the one who knows our secret thoughts. Jesus confronts the church in Theatira. He says that they are overly tolerant. 
uh, Ken helped us understand about the letter to Pergamum last week, and they were uh, mixing idol worship and immorality with their worship of Jesus. Jesus is saying similar things here. You tolerate this, and I hold it against you. We, I've just been reflecting on, on British culture, um, certainly for someone growing up in my generation, our culture is changing as we welcome people from many other uh, nations in, in our kind of new global 21st century life. Um, but certainly for older British culture, we tend to see tolerance as a very positive virtue. It's a, I remember David Cameron saying it was one of the, uh, the former prime ministers saying it's a, it's a characteristic of, of good Britishness to be tolerant. And on one hand, you think, yeah, it is, absolutely. It's to be commended. But the one who rules the heavens, Jesus Christ, says that toleration of, of those who practice pagan lives and, and, and live worldly, ungodly, unrighteous lifestyles means that God himself is against us. He doesn't tolerate it, and nor should we. Specifically, Jesus is speaking in verse 20 about this woman Jezebel and her deceiving of God's people. She's giving false teaching, it seems. She's, there's some measure of sexual sin. There's uh, comments about food that have been sacrificed to idols. Um, some commentators think that maybe around the feasts and ceremonies with the trade guilds and the textile workers and the kind of unions of their day, if you like, in Thyatira, around their, their feasts in order to trade, there was worship of idols and that, that believing tradesmen and women were involved, mixing it up. If you want to trade in this town, you've, you've just got to go to the feasts and the festivals. You've, you've just got to do this stuff, just uh, tolerate it. It was probably small steps, but you can see how the slipping comes. We don't see uh, toleration as anything significant, but Jesus sees it as, and he calls it out here, as spiritual adultery. In, in little, if you jump on to verse 22, uh, Jesus speaks about those who commit adultery with Jezebel. It, it's probably not speaking about a, a, a physical adultery. The Old Testament depicts God as the husband of his people. The idols, the false gods, are the illegitimate lovers. Jezebel, we'll come to her in a moment, she was an outsider. She came in and seduced God's people into sin. In the New Testament, we're called the bride of Jesus Christ. We belong to him alone. We're, we're pure. We're being made ready. He's beautifying us, uh, getting us ready for the day when he returns. And this requires from us a faithfulness to Jesus Christ, not a toleration or a compromise. There are small steps to spiritual adultery. Uh, the Bible teaches us. And then we find ourselves tolerating things that are huge compromise in our lives. I guess in the same way there are small steps to physical, sexual adultery. Just as I'm saying this stuff this morning, I, I just have in, in, in my own mind, maybe, maybe it's a word of knowledge just for someone here today. Are you beginning to take small steps to physical adultery? Is there something in your mind that is beginning to lead you down a path where you must not compromise sexually? The Lord calls you to repentance today, to turn away from that. Let's turn to Jezebel. Are you still with me? Just wave if you're, if you're with me. Give me a smile. That's good. Thank you. Well done. Um, Jezebel, we find the story of Jezebel in 1 Kings, and, uh, 1 Kings 16 through to about 2 Kings 8 and 9. We get the whole sorry saga. Um, 1 Kings 16, we find Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of, uh, of Israel has been divided by now because of their sin. And in a long list of sinful, idol-worshipping kings of Israel, Abraham tops them all off. And one of the biggest issues for him is the woman that he marries. Here's a little aside. Just be careful 
about the company you keep as a believer. Be careful about the friends you make. Be wise about the people you marry, the people you make alliances with in business, friendship and marriage. You may think you have things under control, but Jezebel's pagan, Baal-worshipping idolatry caused Ahab to give away what little um, God-given authority he had remaining anyway. First through some compromise, probably, hey, yeah, come, let's have an alliance. You bring your gods, we'll worship ours, uh, you worship yours. People can make their own choice, they're all adults here. Hey, it comes from there slipping to a point of total domination and wickedness. The reign of Ahab and Jezebel is a low point um, among many low points in the leadership of God's people in Israel. This is around, if, if you're familiar with the story, maybe you're not, um, uh, familiar around the time of Elijah and Elisha, these two incredible prophets. They spoke truth to power with a courage and a spiritual authority that is breathtaking through one and two kings. They came under physical threat. Um, they came under intense spiritual and demonic attack, fear, uh, depression, uh, suicidal thoughts, all because of the evil spirit of control and sexual manipulation and idolatry that was released through Jezebel and all that manifested through her. By the time we get to 2 Kings chapter 9, Ahab, the, the king, has long since died in battle. One of his sons has also been deposed and his second son, Joram, is on the throne. But Jezebel, the, the manipulator queen mother, is, is really the power behind the throne. She's controlling everything. This is a pagan, effectively, on the throne of God's people. And as you get to 2 Kings 9, even at the point of her death, She's still trying her old tactics, sexual manipulation. She twists, she lies, she tries to dominate with fear. It takes an aggressive Jehu, who's been secretly anointed king by Elisha, the prophet. Jehu comes to her with a mandate to wipe out and destroy the house of Ahab, to avenge the blood spilled by Jezebel. He, he prophesies over her a bloody death. And she gets it. It's incredible. Read it in your own time. Never mind the Windsors on Oprah. Never mind Game of Thrones. This is Two Kings is more Netflix than you could imagine. It's incredible. Um, but it does come with a Certificate 18 uh, warning. So what are we saying anyway about the, about the local church in Theatira and indeed for our lives today? Jezebel had died probably 900 years or so before this letter from Jesus was written. But the demonic spirit that was at work through her life and her sin was evidently at work amongst the church in Thyatira. There probably wasn't a lady in the church called Jezebel. It was probably a, a code word that enabled them to unmask the spirit that was at work, uh, that had been allowed room to work as they'd embraced the ministry of a woman or maybe even a man um, that was operating in the church, picking people off. In the 25 years or so that, that I've had the privilege of leading in churches, there have just been three occasions when we've genuinely faced what we call a Jezebelic spirit. Uh, you hear a lot of church leaders talk about it. Um, for, for me, I, I think you say, oh yeah, yeah it's Jezebelic spirit. It's, it's a bit like having the flu. You talk about, oh yeah, I had the flu, and then you have the flu, and you think, oh boy, I've never had the flu before. I thought I was going to die. Um, uh, the, this word Jezebelic spirit gets banded around, but when you truly confront it, you do realize that is nothing like I've ever touched before. Um, at work, in a local church, for us, on the, on the rare occasions we've touched it, it's been so completely overwhelming. It's brought a fear 
um, all the stuff that Elijah experienced. You felt that in yourself as, as leaders. It's brought a wasting to the people of God. It's the purpose of all demonic activity. Of course, it comes from Satan himself and his strategy we are aware of. It's to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's exactly what this demonic spirit intends to do. And the headlines in this passage, the Theatira, the, the things we learn from the stories in 1 and 2 Kings, I, I've just pulled out a few um, symptoms or characteristics of a, of a Jezebelic spirit at work in a church. And maybe you can just think through these. Where you see powerful and impressive gifting, but without any true character of Jesus in the hearts. Where you see ongoing manipulation and ungodly ambition and control. There's a there can be a Jezebelic spirit at work when you see uh, what I call counterfeit authority. Um, Revelation speaks later on about a spirit of lawlessness. And the, with, with this spirit, there's an inability to come under the, the gentle, loving, normal authority structures that are given to us by Jesus for the family and for the church. With this spirit at work in a church and in our lives, we see an abuse of power and relationships. There's often unhealthy intimacies that, that, uh, and emotional dependencies in order to control people that, that develop. Uh, sometimes that can be um, sexual um, and, and it's used to abuse and manipulate people. Actually, the roots of that, the Bible says, are witchcraft. It's an occult um, spirit. What else do we see? Lies, gossip, playing one party off uh, against another, seductive words and actions to control people's responses. It's ugly, isn't it? Um, another, ma another manifestation of this spirit is, is an overwhelming jealousy of other people's lives, a bitterness of heart. Again, the purpose is to destroy other people's security. Um, in the passage we're reading today, uh, that was worked out through tolerating sin and worldliness and uh, food sacrifice to idols. Today we might see it in lives where there's a surface Christianity, but underneath a very worldly heart, an appearance of spirituality, but, but a sharp, harsh personal ambition underneath. And then sometimes you see as well a, a use of spiritual gifts to um, impress and to manipulate situations, not using them properly at all. Um, maybe there's some truth in the prophetic gift or in the teaching that's brought, but it's misused to control, um, sowing doubt, undermining God's authority and the authority of leaders in a local church, undermining the scriptures and their authority. Again, right back to the garden in the beginning when Satan first asked Adam and Eve, did God really say? That's what the Jezebelic spirit continues to sow. And then, of course, another symptom is that there's an appearance of repentance when loving, godly confrontation is brought, but underneath there's no real heart change. There's a really helpful book uh, I've read a few times over the years by a guy called John Paul Jackson uh, called Unmasking the Jezebelic Spirit. Um, it's not one to read at bedtime. Um, the, the, he says the Jezebel spirit is shown to represent one of Satan's most successful attempts to infiltrate the body of Christ. It operates primarily through gifted and seemingly sold out believers. It's much more difficult to detect than some more overt immorality or occult activity most pastors and leaders are ready to assume that a person with obvious prophetic and teaching gift must be blessed with an equally well-developed character. Jackson says, this can be a fatal mistake. Oh, too right. We've learned a lot, church, haven't we, this year about contamination, um, about the need to isolate sources of infection for protection, to stop stuff spreading. The Lord insists here with the believers in Theatira that they decontaminate themselves from the power of this 
spirit. And he promises them a true spiritual authority instead of the counterfeit that they've, they've been drawn into. Let me just share you a story, then we'll move to a, a conclusion and, and a little bit of worship. Are you still with me? Yeah. Um, let me just share briefly one example. Um, a lady called H in the church we planted in Oldham 25 years ago, we started this September, um, came to the church three, four years in, uh, wonderful, um, married, young children, um, really strong prophetic gift, um, seemed very spiritual, was very flattering to me. Actually, that's worth noting. I think whenever you see it in the scriptures, and certainly we've observed it in our lives, that a Jezebel always needs an Ahab, um, a, a, a weak and fearful leader that they can control. That was me as a young pastor. I was afraid of confrontation. I was wanting to believe the best about everyone and anyone. And so she said to me things like this, hey, you're the only pastor I've ever felt safe around. You're the only one who's strong enough to lead me. She was very flattering about my gift and my call. Um, she'd make brilliant contributions into our Sunday meetings, um, would always speak about me to the people and, and build me up. And wow, I felt like a million dollars. Um, she was looking for influence and power. At times, she was quite sexually manipulative with, with us as leaders. She would play one off against the other, we began to realize. Quite a Jekyll and Hyde um, uh, approach, just sowing seeds, uh, twisting, gossiping, lying. When, when we finally began to realize what was going on and we tried to lovingly confront uh, things and she realized she wasn't going to get the power base that she was building, the, the flare-up from anger when we called her to repentance, the bitterness was so destructive. Um, she didn't care who she damaged. Um, it, oh, she tried to tear the team and the church apart. She threw out all kinds of accusations and lies. Um, she was the only truly called one. Her mission from God was to lead the church out from under our weak, ungodly leadership. If only people knew what we were really like as leaders. She used curses um, to speak sickness over our lives, bring weakness into us demonically. Uh, again, each time we've seen this, we've, we've, we've had uh, gifts and words and even cassette tape with curses recorded on it, witchcraft stuff, voodoo prayers and prophecies to take us out and kill us. Um, we're just unmasking something here this morning as we hit this passage. It, uh, and, and what seems to be spiritual when you look behind the mask is just ugly, ungodly, unrighteous. And that is why we do not tolerate it. We just about held on back then, 25, uh, 20 odd years ago. Thank God the Holy Spirit opened our eyes, showed us what he already saw, enabled a young, fragile leader like me um, to, to exercise some God-given authority with fear and trembling. Each time that we've hit this, and as I say, it's been very, very rare. It's been wonderful to have um, prophetic and apostolic support come in. Um, again, a reflection perhaps of healthy authority, spiritual authority being exercised in Jesus' name. And God was able to bring healing to us and increase our inheritance and strengthen the church and shape our character. And that's the fruit we see in the promises of these verses. Let me just move quickly to the end. Uh, Joe and Amy, maybe you can be ready and then we'll worship and break bread. When you read verses 21 to 23, it sounds more like Old Testament languages, full of really difficult judgments to read. But Jesus is saying to the church, you don't tolerate this spirit. You don't reason it out. You don't come to some kind of agreement. These are attitudes and actions that are rooted in demonic control. And so we cut them off. We resist them. Um, the root needs pulling up so that it doesn't grow again. 
God's patience. He gives time for repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's his character. But we see here in this passage the true character of the Jezebel spirit. They're unwilling to repent. And along with her spirit, the children here are her spiritual children, her followers. They're in it together. Uh, and however, they've, they've hardened their hearts and they've set their faces and they're walking headlong into the judgment of God with deliberate steps. That's a fearful place to be. With the original Jezebel, Jehu showed no mercy where it was clear there was no repentance. He cut down everything under her control. It's about righteousness and faithfulness, true spiritual authority, the authentic sort given by Jesus to disciples like us to carry with integrity. Jezebel represents the opposite of that, and it's so destructive. Now, verse 24, to the rest of you who've not held to her teaching. You just start to play something beautiful, Joe. That'd be lovely um, if that doesn't mess up the techies and the sound. To the rest of you who've not held to her teaching. Friends, how we live matters. If, if you hear Jesus today and you know there's been some compromise in your heart, great, we get called to repentance. Today is a chance for you and I to repent. Don't wait any longer. The good news for Theatira and to us is that those who haven't compromised to her teaching can hold on because Jesus is coming soon. Remember the one who's coming, the one who John's had the vision of, Jesus Christ. He's the true Jehu. He's the one the story of Jehu points towards, the one who comes with a true sword of righteousness and justice, the one who sees all things, the one who's going to put all things right. He's coming soon. So be encouraged. Hold on. Verse 26 says, to him who overcomes, literally to him who holds on and takes a firm grip and buckles up and holds on tight, don't let go. We're going to overcome. Holding on sometimes is overcoming. That'll do. Holding on to Jesus, holding on to the gospel truths about him in the face of pressure is a success in itself. Being faithful with what we have, continuing to believe and trust Jesus, even in the face of pressure to compromise, even when you don't see him moving and don't yet see evidence of his victory or breakthrough. This is our call to see Jesus. He's our focus. He's the one with all authority. He's the one enthroned in heaven now who's overcome sin and death and every demonic spirit. It's all under his feet and he's coming soon to make all things right forever. The psalm quoted in verse 27 is Psalm 2. You can read it in your own time, but it's an authority psalm. It helps us understand that the true king is one day going to exercise his perfect authority and it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. This demonic spirit and no other spirit will succeed where true godly authority is exercised. That's the basis to which we hold on to. And then finally, we finish verses 26, 27 with this true God-given authority. Jesus says to his disciples, all, all things have been given to me by my Father. And, and, and then he hands over the keys of authority to disciples. You and I, all authority has been given to me, Matthew 28. Now go and make disciples to the ends of the earth and the ends of the age. What does our overcoming look like, Crawley Church? It looks like holding on. It looks like we continue to make disciples for Jesus. It looks like we continue walking with humility, holding carefully his delegated authority, holding it for him, not for our own ambition, not for ourselves, but for his glory. And to the repentant, non-compromising, faithful church in Theatira and in Crawley, Jesus promises to release his authority for a church that will reach into the nations. Wow, into cities and other far-flung places and languages and tribal groups. 
but with the character and the non-compromising heart that the church of Jesus Christ is called to. Wow. Shall we worship together for a moment? Then we'll come back and pray and break bread as we just welcome the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Lord, we've just spoken about some difficult things to talk about and hear this morning. We trust, Holy Spirit, you're at work in our hearts. We don't need to manipulate anything. Just as we worship now and we lift up King Jesus, will you reveal anything that you need to call us to repentance on? Will you bring to the surface anything that needs cutting off and leaving behind today? We just offer our hearts to you, Jesus. Amen.